visit rti at english.rti.org.tw. Thanks for being with us here today on Radio Taiwan International for today's English language feature programs. Coming up ahead this hour, we'll have Stroke of Light with Jake Chen. Natalie So will be bringing us her weekly look at current events on the other side of the Taiwan Strait in Eye on China. And we'll also have our weekly Mandarin language lesson, Chinese to Go. But let's get things underway with Here in Taiwan. Welcome to Here in Taiwan. This Thursday, December the 6th, 2018. I'm Charlie Slora, hosting today. I'm joined in the studio by Shirley Lin. Hi, Charlie. Hello, Shirley. And John Van Trieste is here as Charlie. well. Hello to you both. Today, we're going to be talking about the famous honey lemon candidate uh, from the Taipei mayoral election. Well, he didn't win, but he has got himself... A whole new sponsorship deal. We'll be hearing about how pollution in the Chinese city of Nanjing has uh, the aunties doing their evening dancer sizes in a hotel lobby rather than in a park. And a pioneering American surgeon who worked in Taiwan for many years has passed away at the age of 91. We'll be talking about these, possibly more, coming right up. Okay, John, let's start off with you today. Tell us uh, the update on the curious story of Mr. Wu Eryang, the famous honey lemon candidate who became an internet meme during the Taipei mayoral race. Well, he won but just 0.4% of the vote, but he also won himself a little sponsorship deal here. Uh, during the mayoral debates, I think they were televised at the time, uh, he broke into song and also talked about uh, the magical curative powers of honey lemon beverages, something that he claims cured him of a tumor, actually. Uh, not sure if that's been scientifically proven I remember or not. Some, there was some skepticism about but, the claim at the time, as I recall. Yes. Well, anyway, it made him definitely uh, an over, overnight celebrity. He broke the internet, as they say. And uh, now he is helping the Forestry Bureau promote uh, honey products. Not honey lemon products, but, but honey, honey, honey. Okay. We'll so get to the lemons later. He's got the honey. Well, life gives you lemons. <laughs> life has not yet given him lemons, but it's given him honey. honey. Well, the director general of the Forestry Bureau says that he is the best imaginable mouthpiece for honey and other agricultural products. And indeed, he did, uh, when asked for comment, I guess, he did go on to talk about other agricultural products. Now, he says that Taiwan's agricultural products are of better quality than those of most other countries. So I guess he's in agricultural product connoisseur. Well, he's on message, certainly. All right. <laughs> and he especially thinks... See, he's promoting honey, but he did bring the lemons into this. Okay. He added that uh, locally grown lemons are far more aromatic than those produced elsewhere. Mm. So, I mean, I guess that if you have locally produced honey, you have the best of both worlds there. Uh, but he is... He does seem to be... Sounds a little bit critical here. He does say that, you know, Taiwanese farmers are hardworking, and, but the prices for the things... For their produce and the things that they, they make really fluctuate depending on things like weather and so forth. And, and he really feels like the government should should help out. And I think that may have been 
part of what inspired him to run, perhaps. Because yeah. uh, well, I think the government does, don't they? There's often a lot of well, mechanisms in place to try and make sure that when we're, when there's a glut, that farmers still get a fair price. Well, he, he feels there's more they can do, it sounds like here. It says that he, he called on the government to work harder to promote local produce domestically, of course, but also among Taiwan's diplomatic allies. And another, he brought pineapples into this too. I think another thing he said was something about promoting diplomacy through pineapple cakes. That kind of got buried beneath all the rest of it. But right, uh, there right. was, I think, another comment in his... We well, see, I think that's, that's been done. I mean, like everyone knows about pineapple cakes. Everyone who comes to Taiwan buys pineapple cakes well. to take back. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not a new take. I think the honey lemon angle now oh, yeah. right. hasn't that's been true. tried yet. Yeah, he still thinks, though, that the government should, when the government gets, you know, when, the, when life gives us too many pineapples, when there's a glut, instead of destroying them, which I think it looks like is something that they do, or just buying them and leaving it at that. They should make they should make pineapple cakes, and uh, it says it will create market demand for the fruit. I'm not sure if that won't just drive the price of pineapple cakes down as well, but uh, there's that there's one plan. Also, in this story, uh, some of our faithful listeners may know that uh, we recently talked about a forestry bureau calendar that's been a hit oh we did yes uh, that's right. what was the name of that again it was it had a japanese name the satoyama was it it was talking about the animals of the uh, satoyama which we established in english was just the plains or oh, no the right, foothills the foothills, the foothills yeah so the that area sort of just their... between the, 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 the plains and the mountains so the it's foothills. a forestry bureau calendar now he was at this forestry bureau event at taipei's huashan 1914 creative park which it this story mentions is also where the one of those places where the calendars are on sale and it said that uh it attracted a lot of buyers over the weekend while I guess the can- the former candidate was out there. Uh, 800 were sold on Saturday, the first day. So Very good. Uh, hopefully the sales of honey products were just as good. I've, uh, it was only just today, in fact, that I came across a lot of the internet memes that uh, that people had made after he made his famous uh, appearance mm. in the debate where he he. Uh, where he breaks into song, he says, "I'd I'd like to illustrate my uh, my theory about honey lemons uh, in this song," and then he sings like a, a, a verse of a, of a song, right. and, pe- and uh, people, as people do on the internet, they took that and they did various uh, musical accompaniments to right. it. I saw like sort of like a rock version of it. There was a youth orchestra. A youth orchestra. Yeah, there was a whole a whole one. A whole of, you had to, you sort of saw it split screen and nine like, yes. uh, kids your lighters, all everyone. Sort of playing, <laughs> or I guess know, playing their instruments screens. along. And, uh, and it, was, it was great. It was very, very creative. Mm. It gave some, lightened up a lot of people's day anyway. Well, here's a story of someone else who very certainly made the world a better place and who will very much be missed. Uh, This is the retired American surgeon Samuel Nordhoff, who was founder of the Taipei-based Nordhoff Craniofacial Foundation, who has very sadly passed away in the United States, aged 91. Nordhoff was better known in Taiwan by his Chinese name, which was Luo Huifu, and he passed away on Monday, and there'll be a memorial service for him in Taipei at a time yet to be specified. He was a surgeon and missionary from Iowa. He came to Taiwan in 1959 at the invitation of the Mackay Memorial Hospital, a hospital founded by another famous uh, surgeon and missionary. He began helping Taiwanese children who were born with cleft lips and palates, and this was a mission that would remain important to him for 40 years. 
He served as president of both the Mackay Memorial Hospital and Changong Memorial Hospital. Set many milestones in craniofacial care in the nation. He set up the first craniofacial centre for patients with cleft lips and palates, along with the first polio rehabilitation centre, the first burn centre, and the first intensive care unit in Taiwan. A lot of firsts. Many, many firsts there. In 1989, he donated $100,000 to establish the Nordhoff Craniofacial Foundation to help people with craniofacial deformities receive holistic care. Um, he returned to the U.S. to live in 1999 after he retired from Changong Memorial Hospital, but he still was coming back to visit Taiwan frequently as late as 2013. Uh, he had Parkinson's disease in the later years of his life, and that limited his ability to travel. But last year, he was given a Presidential Cultural Award from President Tsai Ing-wen in recognition of his contributions. He wasn't able to come back to receive it in person, but he sent a, a speech in which he credited all Taiwanese for the honour. He said, on behalf of the people in Taiwan's medical field, the award's really yours. Yeah, you cannot accomplish anything by yourself. Many hard-working and wonderful people helped me through the years. It's the people in the medical field of Taiwan that have worked hard to develop Taiwan's medical community into the world-renowned community it is today. So there... He was uh, very modest uh, and humble there to his end. President Tsai has offered her condolences via a post on Facebook today, and she expressed gratitude for Nordhoff's contribution to Taiwan. Okay, Shirley, well, here in Taiwan, also over in China... Um, as we call, we call them aunties, don't we, or damas, the yes. middle-aged ladies. Mm-hmm. They like to have their evening exercise, often out in the park, doing some dancing and dance exercises. But, but, but in uh, the city of Nanjing, that pollution has driven them indoors. Tell us more about that. Yes. They're not going to stop dancing and exercising. No, they're not. As told by the government, they said, you know, just uh, move indoor. Uh, with the onset of um, smog. So, um, you know, these dancers have become really popular in China. They're called Guangchang Wu, literally square dance, public square, square mm. dance. It's a bit different than uh, the English word square <laughs> no, dance. No, 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 not, not at all. But they just put on dancing. music yeah. and just yeah, do their dance. <laughs> yeah. But uh, apparently close to 20 of these um, aunties, uh, they, they went into the lobby of a hotel and uh, they started doing their dance indoors in the lobby. And um, even though the staff kept telling them, oh, you shouldn't be doing this, they um, had two things to say. They said, well, uh, this hotel belongs in a community which I'm a part of, <laughs> and um, I have every right to do what I want in the hotel. I'm pretty sure there's some <laughs> rental fees involved. <laughs> At least you've got to get a ballroom or something, right? Well, they're and, full of uh, socialist revolutionary yeah. spirit. I'll give them that. Right, right. <laughs> so anyway, the, the staff actually called the police, and they came over, and uh, after some talk, they said, well, all right, just this one time. They, they, they asked the hotel to kind of like, you know, comply, basically. So they did their 40-minute dance, and they did left um but you know the other thing was of course they actually violated the public security administration punishment law but uh but the thing is it wasn't as serious so they weren't fined but um anyway this happened last month and uh it it only got the news only got to us here but uh basically um um you know the uh the 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 aunties were also saying um the government told us to do you know to exercise, mm. and uh, and and they and made an announcement saying that uh, if the smog is on, then you know and exercise indoors, 
And so, well, here we are. We're exercising indoors, and said, "Hey, it's just only going to do you know take us a few days until the smog goes away." I mean, once the smog goes away, no matter how hard you invite us, we wouldn't be coming in anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> we didn't want to come here anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so it's. Uh, I think it's it's uh, taken as sort of. Uh, Axiomatic that there's few things more more fearful, fearsome than uh, than the aunties right. in Chinese cultures the here word in Taiwan. Dama has a bit of a is a bit of a loaded word, isn't it? It's got a certain feel to it that aunties just does not have in yeah. English. I think the, yeah, because they're they're, they're they're formidable. Right. You know? <laughs> so, there's a tiger in every one someone, of them. Someone <laughs> uh, friend posting on Facebook how you know have one of these aunties like she missed her she's on the bus she missed her stop because she wasn't paying attention and then she just browbeat the driver until he stopped just right in the middle of the road. <laughs> you know, to let her yeah, off. we're talking about you tiger. Don't, you can't say no to them. Yeah. No, we call we're calling them tiger aunties, right? As opposed to tiger moms. Okay, finally today, John, tell us about uh, a Matchbox Expo that's oh. coming up. <laughs> You'll have to, you know, move pretty fast to see this one. It closes December fifteenth, so towards the end of it. But uh, you can't make this stuff up. Up actually, this is an exhibit uh, exhibit of historic Matchboxes opened by a, a former fire chief, who in turn was the son of a match. A, a matchmaker, maker. <laughs> a maker <laughs> sort of match. of a, someone who ran yeah, match profession. factories, the yes. Taiwan match. So, uh, for, like from father to son, there's a pyro, mm. something pyro going on in that family. Oh yeah, the <laughs> boys who like playing with matches, they they like become firemen. It's quite common. <laughs> anyway, uh, it does have an artistic value to it because uh, you know at one point match match boxes were everywhere, you know, and there's just a few examples. They said movie houses, hotels, barbershops, banks, beverage vendors. All of them used to post ads on the matchboxes that they were given out, you know, back before I think lighters sort of took over from there. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, I think uh, his this former fire chief's father spent more than 20 years directing two different uh, plants of the Taiwan Match Company and later became its general manager. Of course, he went into fighting fires. But I think the collections are sort of artistic, you know, it, this... Uh, the write-up from the Keelung Cultural Affairs Bureau compares them to, like, the covers of vinyl records, sort of. They capture mm. an era. as And mm. so uh, eventually, of course, they were replaced by lighters. But with the help of a Keelung-based artist who's curating the show, uh, they're presenting these matchboxes from different eras and how they changed over time. In addition, you'll also see... Uh, the former match factory operator's manuscripts. He actually did some research into matches during his lifetime and some old photographs that tell, it says here, stories of a family deeply related to fire, well, I'd say. <laughs> and where can people find that uh, expo if they happen to be in the Taipei area? That's at the Keelung Cultural Center. That's uh, up in Geelong. Right, just about an hour north oh, of us. So okay. hurry up and get there. They'll Until close December 15th. December 15th. Okay. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do stick around. We've got Stroke of Light, Eye on China and Chinese to go coming up next we'll be back at the end of the hour to bring you one more thing but till then i'm charlie starrer i'm shirley lynn i'm john ventrias stay tuned stroke of light a portrait of taiwan through the eyes of painters sculptors filmmakers and photographers Hello, and welcome back to Stroke of Light, 
I'm Jake Chen. Last week, we looked at the work of Chris Bierbach, a Brazilian photographer who takes inspiration from older photographs and create concept work with surreal elements. I mentioned in last week's show that Latin American photographers have this style and flair that is unlike what I've seen in the work of photographers from any other part of the world. Where other photographers might be subtle or implicit, these photographers are not afraid to push the aesthetic envelope and integrate visual elements that are outside of people's comfort zone. And the work that we'll be looking at today is another great example that showcases the artist's unbridled creativity. From Mauricio Toro Goya, a photographer from Chile, we have a group of black and white photos that portray the pain and suffering of one of the darkest period in the nation's recent history. In 1973, Augusto Pinochet, a Chilean general supported by the United States government, conducted a coup to overthrow the democratically elected president at the time, Salvador Allende, and the military coup effectively ended the nation's civilian rule. General Pinochet became the Chilean military commander-in-chief, and within a year, he was appointed by the military as the supreme head of the nation. Following his rise to power, Pinochet ordered Dina, the then Chilean military police, to arrest prosecute, torture, and kill political dissidents. By different accounts, some 80,000 people were imprisoned, tens of thousands were tortured, between 1,000 to 3,000 were executed, and another 3,000 some people disappeared. To say it was a humanitarian crisis would probably be an understatement. It was the darkest period in recent Chilean history. Unfortunately, very little, if any, of the gruesome massacre and torture was recorded due to strict government control at the time. However, photographer Mauricio Toro Goya took it upon himself to reenact the events in history because he believes it is important for the modern-day Chileans to remember that period in history and to share the pain of those who came before them. And the images he made are not for the faint of heart. In the first photo of the group, I see a few members of a family, all dressed in black, sitting solemnly together and holding a mourning ceremony for the ones who were killed. In front of them lies a group of black and white portrait photos of the deceased with a few rows of candles lined up right around them. Each one of the family members also has a portrait photo pinned in front of their chest, which presumably are for the ones that they've lost. Quite a few visual elements and characteristics have made this photo even darker than its subject matter. First and the most obvious, this is a black and white photograph with very dark tonality. The entire scene is barely lit by the few candles and darkness creeps in from every corner and from every angle, as if it is almost engulfing the room. What makes the solemn scene eerie is that a young girl sits on the floor, close to the bottom right corner of the frame, and she's looking at 
what appears to be some toys right in front of her. Upon a closer look, I see that uh, these uh, toys are actually toy soldiers that are lined up right in front of her. Clearly, the use of children's toys is to symbolize the secret police who killed her family members. Her appearance at first glance does not fit in with the rest of the room. After all, no young children are seen playing at funerals. But, like we learned in previous episodes, symbolism is a big part of Latin American culture and art in general. And given the political background at the time, we can clearly make the connection that the silent girl is looking at the real threat against her family, which is the secret police who could show up at any time at this funeral. From here on out, the photographs get darker and darker, revealing the truly gruesome and sadistic nature of the oppression. At the same time, the creative input of the photographer is also becoming increasingly pronounced. In one of the photos, we see a man lying on the floor, dead, with blood still oozing out of a gunshot wound on his chest. The dead man is lying on a really messy area of the floor with photographs of a military general scattered around his body. It is as if the killer is living a signature right on the scene. In the photo immediately underneath this one, we see several military personnel alongside a skeleton figure all firing their weapons at someone tied to a wooden cross. The circumstances, i.e. a long-bearded man being tied to a cross and he is scantily dressed, does remind people of the biblical depiction of Jesus Christ being crucified. And the connection to a divine figure elevates the level of history of the scene. The figure of Christ appearing as victim being slaughtered by the secret police brings a million questions, and not to mention, it enhances the scene's visual impact. The name of this photo series is Golgotha, which, according to the stories in the Bible, refers to the place where Jesus Christ is buried after his crucifixion. Goya explained the inspiration of the Jesus story, saying that Christ was, again according to the Bible, arrested for thinking differently than the Romans at the time. He was captured, subsequently tortured, and his body disappeared. And this was what happened to the thousands of Chileans under Pinochet's rule. And the photographer wants to link that suffering to that of Jesus Christ. Goya certainly didn't hold back when he said that he wanted Chileans in the present day to feel the pain of those who were tortured and killed. The act of killing, torturing, and raping are shown in full effect in many of the photos, to the point that they're almost difficult to watch. In one frame, we see a man dressed in shirt and tie and sunglasses forcefully yanks a woman by her hair with his left hand while holding a gun with his right hand, pointing it to her temple. The tortured woman appears lifeless and is not struggling. Her bare feet steps on the messy floor, and the two hands extending out of her sleeves are those of a skeleton. In the background, a woman collapses on the floor. Her eyes are covered, her mouth gagged, and she's almost stripped naked. In other photos, we see the figures of Jesus Christ tied to a bed, stripped almost naked, 
yelling and squirming as if he is in extreme pain. His body is hooked to a number of electric wires connecting to machines on both sides of the bed. Men, again dressed in suit and tying glasses, are seen standing behind the machines, watching the suffering of this man with no emotion whatsoever, and they appear to be recording data. In arguably the most gruesome and revolting photo of the series, one woman is seen stripped almost naked, tied to a bed. One man uses a gun to pry her mouth open, while another man holds her down and rapes her. The sense of death and suffering is almost palpable in each and every single one of these photos. It goes without saying that scenes of such inhumane act are never directly shown to viewers. Most photographers tend to opt for more subtle ways of presenting human suffering. And I think what sets Goya apart as an artist and as a photographer is that he has clearly been careful about not crafting his photos into something with little more than shock values. By showing the revolting act of torturing and integrating symbols of death, such as skeletons and ravens, as well as divine figures such as Jesus Christ, and depicting the omnipresence of the secret police. He managed to subtly nudge the viewer's attention to the political backdrop that extends outside the frames. The military generals, the members of the secret police, was never really at the center of the attention in any of the photos. It was always the victims that occupied our attention at first. But these criminals exist in the corner of the frame, near the edge, and sometimes. Indirectly peeking out behind doors, or even only as figures on photographs. But because of this subtle appearance, is carefully staged by the photographer into every photo. We as viewers cannot help but notice them, and feel the pressure cranking up in our subconsciousness. At the end of seeing these photos, I feel that I've been walking just outside the torture rooms in 1970s Chile. My stomach feels clenched, and I almost have difficulty breathing. To involve viewers, and to not only make them feel the suffering of the subject matter, but also the political atmosphere of the time that they live in, is no small feat by an artist. And in his own unique way, Mauricio Torogora has recorded an important and sad piece of Chilean history. And reserve it for the rest of mankind. Thank you for listening to another episode of Stroke of Light. I'm Jake Chen. Talk to you next week. China. First-hand perspectives on a quickly changing society.
Hello and welcome to Eye on China. I'm Natalie So. In a highly anticipated meeting at the G20 summit, U.S. President Donald Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping called a three-month truce to their ongoing trade war. Currently, there are tariffs on $253 billion worth of Chinese goods, and Trump had threatened before the meeting to raise the 10% tariffs to 25%. This truce effectively keeps the tariffs as they are. China has tariffs on $130 billion worth of U.S. goods. China has promised to buy a substantial amount of agricultural, energy, and industrial products from the U.S. to reduce the trade balance. And the two sides will begin talks on structural changes with respect to forced technology transfer, intellectual property protection, non-tariff barriers, cyber intrusions, and cyber theft. The goal is to resolve these issues within the next three months. Now, today I talk with a China expert, a former professor at the Zhejiang University's Graduate Institute of International Affairs and Strategic Studies, Mr. Lin Zongbing, who gives us his take on this recent truce between U.S. and China. Well, first of all, before the event, most of the predictions were for the worse,、mm. and they did not come true. And、uh, Let's look back at how Trump dealt with、uh, Mr. Kim in North Korea. It's same pattern: maximizing the pressure before, and when meeting, both sides become friends. So we see the repetition of same behavior pattern of President Trump. Therefore, I tend to think after 90 days, the likelihood of resumption of trade war is diminishing. Uh, of course, many observers have already noticed the United States paid a price as well. I, I think because of the mutual common interest, especially the interdependence economically of the great powers, the likelihood of a trade war going for 15 years, according to Mr. Ma Yun, is very, very unlikely. I mean, because the trade war is still going on, it's just it hasn't increased, right? That's right.、Um, and in three months, they, the U.S. has required that they talk and agree on certain issues that they care about, like intellectual property and, and other issues. Do you think that they will be able to resolve these issues in, in three months? I am more optimistic than most because the trade war was started by one side, not by two sides. China has been the receiving end. And therefore, if China just would not intend to really increase that intensity of war, as long as the United States finds it sufficient, the trade war will go down. And as I said before, many observers have already noticed the United States is paying a price as well. The London Economist noticed that because of tariffs, the cost of input in the United States is going up. That hurts the United States' own economy. So you think that、uh, Trump is eventually going to back down? Yeah, I think the so-called、uh, ninety-day truce is a way of backing down, not losing Trump's face.、Mm. But there's still a lot of tariffs in place right now. Do you think he's going to go back on those, or what do you think is going to happen? I think maybe ninety days, the tariffs will just stay as they are, and after ninety days. That when the China showed more that the United States could benefit from what China conceded, then the 
trade war intensity would go down. First of all, I don't agree that Donald Trump is a cold warrior. In cold war, people fight for beliefs, ideology, and they do not fight for interest. For instance, John F. Kennedy, during his inauguration, he said, whatever cost, wherever we need, whatever friends we will support, it's no end. But Trump aims at getting interest back mm. in solid terms, economic interest, so the United States can go up again domestically. And uh, if the trade war goes on, it's not good for him either. So do you think this was a bad move on his part? No, I think he's a very skillful player. He's done a good job. Before the meeting, he had all the others playing the bad cops. Private Vice President Prince, Secretary of, uh, Pompeo, all sounded very tough. Right. Then he let him play the good cop uh-huh. <laughs> gracefully. <laughs> That's He's a very true. good player. I mean, uh, and people were talking about a Cold War after hearing Vice President Mike Pence speaking yes, very exactly. tough. Um, yeah. Do you think there is this kind of um, No, I don't think so. Well, let's, let's go back to see how President Trump was very good at playing this game when meeting with Mr. Kim from Pyongyang and Donald Trump threatened nuclear war, remember? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and even old hand seasoned observer like Harry Kissinger was talking about the likelihood of a nuclear war. Even Henry Kissinger could not say this is not unlikely. Mm-hmm. So it showed how well Donald Trump played his card. So you, do you think that he has this planned out strategy or he acts impulsively? Uh, I think uh, most people think he <laughs> acts impulsively, <laughs> but I think there's more to it than observed. And what do you think about China's attitude towards the U.S.? China, from the very beginning, has been saying that they do not want to have a trade war. But the United States insists on fighting a war. China would uh, play along. So China does not want to add fire to the situation. Whenever the United States would uh, soften the bit, China would follow suit right away. Who, which side is losing more from the trade war? Right now, China seems to be hard hit, but at the same time, Mr. Xi is using this occasion to justify his pressure domestically on the bad elements of economic structure. So he's using an environmental adversity for domestic improvement. Mm. What kind of improvements are you talking about? Oh, well, I think he knows very well the system because of the decades of bad practice, has many, many shortfalls or bugs. Well, for instance, in order to react, he actually opened up. He even staged a fair of import. That is unheard of. People would have a fair of export. He stayed a big fair of import. Then uh, he opened up the restriction for foreign goods to come in. So this is trying to increase what, the domestic consumption, or, or what is he trying to do? Uh, that tr- trying to open up, mm-hmm. and uh, also because of the measures he has been taking to streamline or to improve the economic system, a lot of people lose jobs. Have you not noticed a lot of people going back to the countryside? Mm-hmm. Because these are not healthy corporations. 
especially the state-owned corporation. So China is paying a growing pain right now. But I think in the long run, it is good. They need to restructure their, exactly, their economy, exactly. right? Mm-hmm. But they are having challenges. Exactly. They're facing the challenges, I think, uh, wisely. And would you say their economy is, is in a worse position than uh, the United States at this point? On the surface, it seems to be. But on the bottom, the internal strength is growing, especially look at the, the money spent on um, infrastructure, on research, and on education. These are all for long-term good. China is far exceeding the level the United States is doing. So it's still investing in its yeah, future, exactly. yeah. put it that way. That is Professor Ling Zongbing of Danjiang University's Graduate Institute of Strategic Studies and International Affairs, giving us his perspective on U.S.-China relations and their recent truce on the trade war. Thanks for tuning in to Eye on China. I'm Natalie So. Chinese is a special series on Chinese to go, which is jointly produced by the Chinese Language Center of Wenzhou Ursuline University of Languages and Radio Taiwan International. Fitting in in Chinese. 第八十集。听故事。Episode eighty. Listen to the story. 我来台湾才一个月，就交了三个台湾朋友，也一起去了不少地方。我对台湾的夜生活文化特别有兴趣。夜市的意思是晚上的市场。我们去了高雄市最有名的六合夜市，那里的东西比别的夜市贵。我想是因为外地观光客多的原因吧。到了下午四五点。到了下午四五点 六合路的两边开始摆摊子，有的摊子卖吃的，有的摊子卖穿的，真的是要什么有什么。好，要放茶包小茶吗？对。好，我带着数位照相机。跟着台湾朋友逛台湾人真能吃一个摊子一个摊子的吃真让我大开眼界我只吃烤肉汤圆和八宝冰就已经不行了
。来臭豆腐，卖五十年的臭豆腐本来也想吃有名的臭豆腐，但是臭豆腐实在太臭了，还是算了。一份大份的，边走边吃，包起来。你边走边吃，边走边吃。你们辣椒跟大蒜，辣椒。我在六合夜市买了五件 T 恤，两个钱包。和三双筷子，没花多少钱，因为跟老板讲价，一点都没吃亏。没有上漆，可以送人呢、啊。台湾最便宜的手工艺品，啊、哦，环保的，不发霉不变黑啊，不上漆不上蜡，台湾专利款。我照了六十几张照片。打算回宿舍写有关台湾夜市的报告，传给美国的家人和朋友，希望他们也能多了解台湾的夜生活文化。超好吃的，很有名，很有名哦。哎，要几份？越晚，夜市的人越多，也越来越热闹。到底夜市有多么好玩呢？我想，只有去过的人才知道他的乐趣吧。这个故事里有五个关键语法，请多练习。The preceding story has five key grammar points. Please practice them. 才就我来台湾才一个月，就交了三个台湾朋友。I've been in Taiwan for only one month, and I've made three Taiwanese friends. 比那里的东西比别的夜市贵。The things there are more expensive than in other night markets. 什么？什么？夜市真的是要什么有什么。The night markets really have everything you want. 本来，但是还是。我本来也想吃有名的臭豆腐，但是臭豆腐实在太臭了，还是算了。I originally wanted to eat the famous stinky tofu, but it is really too stinky, so forget about it. 没多少。我没花多少钱。I didn't spend much. 
Thank you for listening to our programs here today at Radio Taiwan International. I'm Charlie Storer back in the studio with Shirley Lynn and John Van Trieste, and we're going to leave you with one more thing. Now, John, when we talk about a cram school, I've always imagined that the concept was cramming your kid's head with extra additional knowledge outside of regular school. Uh, but this appears to be an example of a cram school where people are literally cramming to get in. Indeed. Uh, an unnamed cram school in New Taipei's Yonghe district uh, has become especially famous over the last 30 years. It's built up something of a reputation. So not one of those chain cram schools, a really special one. I guess it has, they have really good teachers or something. And when they recently opened up registration for a junior high mathematics course, uh, this was on December 1st, people were lining up as early as 10 p.m. the previous night to make sure that they, that they got a space. Wow. Uh, so this was an overnight lineup, and uh, yeah, Apple Deli... A calculated decision. I suppose part. so. <laughs> the Apple Deli was at the scene at 4 a.m., and they they reckoned that about 100 people were already lined up waiting to register for the next day. So uh, if you came after 4 a.m., I guess you were out of luck. Um, and an instructor says that, you know, that's the fair way to do things, though. It's a traditional method, and it, that's the way, that's the fairest to determine who gets into the class. So you first come, first serve, really. Uh, you may imagine that this was mostly parents. In some cases, there were there were parents there. Uh, and at least one case in this story, though, a child was sent by his father to line up <laughs> overnight. Well, the father wanted to go. The father wanted to. <laughs> I guess so. So this junior high school student surnamed Lou was there at 11 p.m. on Friday. Asked how he felt about going to cram school. He said, well, he thought the teachers were pretty well explaining the material. And it would help him, it would help him stay focused in classes at school. That's if you're not sleep deprived, right? Mm, gosh. Uh, but, and some parents were, really, were willing to make the sacrifice. Uh, also in this article from the Taiwan News is a, a quote from a woman surnamed Xiao who showed up a bit late in the game. She got there at 2 in the morning. Uh, <laughs> but she said she was confident in the school's program. And uh, her child is already a student there. Apparently, he's been there for more than a year. And she said the school's well known. Now, I know that area pretty well. I wonder which one it is. Mm. Um, I've never heard of us. I didn't see any lines walking past recently. Uh, maybe I wasn't there at two in the morning. Though. Yes, no. uh, yeah, the parents say that as long as the curriculum works, they don't mind waiting or paying up a lot of money to do this. If it's just a few times a year anyway. So um definitely an outlier i would say in taiwan that's remarkable yeah i mean what happens when when a cram school is so good that uh, you can't get into it then you have to have like a cram school for the cram school I right so. you have to do a test and you um, oh i'm cramming for the test to get into the cram school i feel like that's but, something that happens in hong kong a lot aren't there like celebrity <laughs> cram school teachers here like mostly here it's like chains yeah mm. there's you see the same ones everywhere you go right how yeah. people just loves to line up i mean i know uh, <laughs> is that is that what it is yes yeah i i know of parents who want to put their children in certain kindergartens and you have to line up for that too and and you know just for the few seats or something like that it's it's incredible i mean i i get these discussions of mothers you know over in line groups you know the social app yeah, the line so much about, even yeah. our favorite messaging app is called Line. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's just amazing. Um, people just want to go for the best. So they're willing to line up for anything, I guess. Mm. Uh, according to their judgment, they think that that's the best school or whatever. And it's such a competition. Yeah, and they and get so the, uptight about it. And it's the same with doctors as well, isn't it? Yeah. Like if a doctor has a good reputation, he's always oh, got yeah. a line around. Oh, yeah. Doctors, certain hospitals, hospitals, definitely. Certain doctors, you just cannot make a reservation with them. Yeah. Yeah, no way. Or whether it's the best boba 
tea or whether it's your, your best uh, soup, dumplings, whatever it is. It's, uh, if there's a line, then that's how you know it's a good one. Mm. Well, that's all we've got time for for today's programmes. Thanks so much for being with us. Do join us again tomorrow when our programmes will include Taiwan Today with Natalie So and Live from Taipei with myself, Charlie Starrer. But for now, on behalf of all of us here at RTI, I am Charlie Starrer, signing off for the day. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day ahead. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also, visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.